Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, uh, and also honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Uh, an often heard criticism of markets is the difficulty, or even sometimes the impossibility, of consumers distinguishing between different providers when the quality of a good or service cannot be known with certainty beforehand. Perhaps the best known model of this is George Akerlof's Lemons model of the used car market. market. Much of what is provided in our financial markets is indeed characterized by asymmetric information on the part of buyers and sellers, suggesting that in the absence of regulation, these markets would break down or only provide low-quality services. Ignored in this narrative, of course, is the ability of markets to develop their own solutions to this obstacle of asymmetric information. One of the most common mechanisms for such is the development of a firm or individual's reputation. Quite simply, firms can invest in resources and building a reputation that is lost if the firm fails to deliver the expected level of quality. Uh, in many markets, a brand name still continues to have convey important information to consumers. Uh, not too long ago, this was the case in our financial markets. The focus of today's book form, Jonathan Macy's new book, The Death of Corporate Reputation, discusses how financial firms originally used reputation as a guarantee of performance. The book then discusses how and why the disciplining effect of reputation has been lost or eroded in our financial markets. Uh, quite honestly, I can think of few scholars more qualified to discuss these topics than Jonathan. He currently serves as the Sam Harris Professor of Corporate Law, Corporate Finance and Securities Law at Yale University, as well as serving a professor, as a professor in Yale School of Management. His textbook, The Law of Financial Institutions, co-authored with Rick Carnell and Jeff Miller, now in its fifth edition, literally sets the standard for the teaching of banking law. He has also published widely in the area of corporation securities law, having written case studies in these areas, as well as dozens of scholarly articles on banking and finance. Uh, I would also have to say for myself, my thinking has probably, on banking and finance has probably um, been influenced by a few people uh, with the magnitude to which having read Professor Macy's work over the years really has channeled my own thinking on these issues. I should, however, emphasize that we should not let his extensive range in scholarship intimidate or dissuade the layman from reading his latest book. Uh, Professor Macy has achieved what few academics manage to do, write a clear, original, and thoughtful book that is also accessible to the layman. Uh, we are very fortunate today to have a distinguished pair of discussants to, the, to offer commentary on Jonathan's new book. Our first discussant will be Damon Silvers. Damon currently serves as the Director of Policy and Special Counsel for the AFL-CIO. Prior to working for the AFL-CIO, he served as a law clerk at the Delaware Court of Chancery. He has also held positions at Credit Suite First Boston and with the law firm Kravitz, Swain, and Moore, as well as serving as a summer fellow in the Enforcement Division at the Securities and Exchange Commission. I will also note that Damon served on the Congressional Oversight Panel, which was established to oversee the TARP. Our final panelist will be Harvey Pitt. From 2001 to 2003, he served as chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Of course, this was not his first time at the SEC, having previously served as the Commission's general counsel in the late 1970s. Prior to his chairmanship at the SEC, he was a partner at Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson. He currently serves as the CEO of Calorama Partners, a consulting firm here in DC. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists and thank our audience and turn the podium over to Jonathan. Mark, thank you very much. Whoops. And uh, I'd like to thank also Roger Pylon and the Cato Institute and, and Lee Lieberman and, and, and the Federalist Society, and as well, of course, uh, David and Harvey for agreeing to uh, participate 
uh, in this in this uh, in this panel. Um, I want to provide a little bit of background about uh, the context of the book and and kind of the basic uh, uh, arguments. Uh, the fir first, by by way of background, the book um, uh, is about is 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 really directed exclusively at the financial sector and the fir firms in the financial space. It's not about manufacturing firms. The story that I have to tell about reputation doesn't apply to places like you know, software firms or a company like Intel or IBM or Apple. It's, it's about credit rating agencies, and it's about investment banks like Goldman Sachs, like credit rating agencies like Standard & Poor's, accounting firms, uh, law firms who specialize in, in bringing firms to market, representing companies that are, that are, that are public. And I came about this uh, research project in, in the following way, that I teach securities regulation, among other courses. And, and in a very central part of uh, the teaching of securities regulation from an economics perspective is what's known as the economic theory of reputation. And what the economic theory of reputation says is that uh, there are a lot of firms uh, in uh, the financial space paradigmatically uh, audit firms, accounting firms that provide audit services to public companies, also credit rating agencies that rate debt, um, as well as uh, 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 other, sorts of, uh, other sorts of services that are provided that can only be explained on a reputational basis. Uh, and, 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 and the reputational model works in the following way. I'll use an example from credit rating agencies to illustrate the point. And this was a, a, a something that I, that I taught to my students. I'd say, imagine you have a company uh, that's located in the Midwest, and it wants to uh, sell debt to the public, sell bonds to the public. And why would a firm like this go to uh, Standard & Poor's or Moody's or, or a big credit rating agency and pay a large sum of money, uh, say $250,000, $500,000, to the credit rating agency in order to obtain a, a credit rating? Um, and uh, the... the uh, uh, the quickly run through the possible answers like, well, it's prestigious to do this. It's required by regulation. Uh, neither of those seem to be either true or particularly compelling. And the answer turned out to be, at least in the account that I, I, I gave traditionally, was, well, the $250,000 payment for this rating was a good was a wise investment because to the extent that the company could get a high rating and could then sell the bonds at a lower interest rate than it could otherwise sell them because of this imprimatur from the credit rating agency, then this investment made a lot of sense. Um, uh, and uh, then the next question came up, well, of course, why would someone be willing to pay more for these bonds? Why would the firm's financing costs go down if the firm got a credit rating, a good investment grade or above credit rating from a, a, a credit rating agency? Um, and the answer is, well, nobody's ever heard of this firm from the Midwest that's trying to sell these bonds. They, it's very costly to go and do due diligence and look at the company and see how the company's uh, performing and whether it's engaged in fraud with respect to perform, uh, reporting its financial results. But when I, when I see this AAA rating from Standard & Poor's, I trust Standard & Poor's reputation, or I trust Moody's reputation. So I'm willing to buy 
these bonds because I know, and here's the kind of the simple economics is, I know that for them to engage in financial shenanigans with this company in the Midwest to give it a higher rating than the debt really deserved, um, it would, you know, they they get this fee of 250000 or whatever it is, but it would cost them so much more in terms of the, the loss of the value of their reputation, the loss of the value of what an economist might call their reputational capital, that they have no incentive to do this. And for years I taught this. I taught this about outside audits. I said, you know, outside auditors don't provide companies with any information they don't already have. And an audit is simply looking at the financial results that the company's internal accounting uh, function has already generated in order to, to tell the public that the audit has been performed and that, and that the company's reporting of its own financial results is consistent with, with appropriate um, uh, auditing uh, procedures and consistent with uh, 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 universally, generally accepted accounting principles. Um, and so we're basically buying the audit firm's reputation to tell the public that there's been a, a, a reputable check on what the company's done. Now, as I, I was teaching this for years and years, and it no longer sounded right to me, you know? <laughs> it, it just, it's, I thought to myself, well, you know, this story was, it was hard for me to move away from the story, frankly, because for whatever its logical uh, deficiencies, it's elegant and simple, and uh, uh, and it can be presented in a, in, a, in a kind of a tidy package that has a certain theoretical appeal. But eventually, the lack of explanatory power uh, became overwhelming, and I began to sort of I felt kind of forced because of the sort of glassy-eyed stares of, uh, of uh, uh, not uncomprehending, but simply disbelieving students, I began to kind of look around for, well, whatever happened here? And, and, and that's what this book tries to do. And basically, the story of the book is to say, you know, um, and maybe this is hopelessly self-defensive or something, but this reputational model did seem to work for a while. That for at least a time, there's really no other explanation for these credit rating agencies or for the audit function. But something has happened over time, and this traditional reputational model, I argue, no longer has any explanatory power, and that uh, we have to have some other explanation for the continued profitability and domination of auditing companies and uh, uh, and uh, 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 credit rating agencies. So, because the traditional reputational model would predict that once these, once people stop believing, once people don't trust these reputational intermediaries like the accounting firms and like the credit rating agencies, then they go out of business because no one has will demand their services anymore. That's clearly not the case. So we need a new theory to come up with to replace the old theory. Uh, and the new theory I have is basically that uh, regulation has replaced reputation in the following couple of ways uh, that I, that I want to talk about. The first is that um, with respect to things like outside audits and with respect to things like credit ratings, it has become the it, it became the case that as a consequence of 
uh, regulation, basically Securities and Exchange Commission regulation, um, the, the demand for these services stopped being a demand in, in terms of reputation. It started being literally a regulatory requirement. That if I'm selling securities, for example, and I want people to be able to buy those securities, I have to pay a credit rating agency to rate those securities, not because the rating is conveying any information to the uh, 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 clientele, the potential people who might invest in these securities, but because regulations of all sorts prohibit prohibit insurance companies, mutual funds, money market funds, banks, broker-dealer firms from purchasing these securities um, unless they obtain a rating. So it's like a driver's license that I need to sell these securities to, to investors. Investors are subject to regulations which say in order to call yourself a money market fund, you have to the securities you buy have to be rated investment grade or higher, sometimes even AAA, by a nationally recognized statistical rating organization. What's that? Well, that's S&P and Moody's, who the Securities and Exchange Commission has designated as nationally recognized statistical rating organizations. Similarly, we have this requirement that our, 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 we have, if we're a public company, we have to have an independent outside audit. Well, that's not, that seems okay. That seems like a good idea. Um, uh, the problem is that once we make this a regulation, we have to have, define all sorts of things. One of the things we have to define is what is an independent audit? Well, the SEC says, well, you know, an independent audit is an audit by a, an accounting firm that is so large that the revenues it gets from your, doing the audit of your company, if you're Facebook or IBM or General Motors is only a small percentage of their revenues. So we have a regulation that inadvertently causes massive consolidation in the accounting industry. Because if I'm an accounting firm and I'm auditing Google and I'm told, well, this has to be less than 4% of your of your of your revenues, your revenues associated with this, this audit function, then I'm going to have to be a pretty big accounting firm. Uh, uh, in order to continue to have, uh, to be considered an independent auditor in order to retain this client. Um, and so we have, you know, we, 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 we saw this wave upon wave of consolidation in the audit industry. We now have four uh, large accounting firms that basically audit all uh, public public companies, a tremendous amount of consolidation. And so, you know, as a consequence of this regulation, we're... Uh, uh, everyone is 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 uh, you know all the all all public companies are are compelled to get these audits from these small number of firms it has nothing to do with the quality of the audits and you know empirically speaking you, one can go out and look at uh, you know Arthur Anderson which was indicted by the Justice Department and put out of business and say well you know. Did, did, did um, Arthur Anderson's clients have, a, have an unusually large number of problems, an un, unusually large number of fraud, or an unusually large number of restatements of their financial results due to uh, accounting irregularities or earnings misstatements? The answer is no. That if, if, if 
if we're running a company and we say, we want to go out and find the best accounting firm to audit our company, we have no objective way of distinguishing among these companies. So we're basically in a world, uh, in, a, in a world where uh, credit rating agencies and uh, accounting firms are, are essentially utilities uh, that aren't involved in a competitive environment anymore. That means they don't compete along any vector. And one of the vectors upon which they no longer compete is the reputational vector. So basically, the story is very simple, which is that, um, that these firms used to have to compete in a market space. Now, demand for them is, artif is, a, is an artificial contrivance of different regulations. So that's one of the concerns, one of the phenomenon that I... I talk about it in the book. I want to just mention a couple of others uh, before um, uh, before um, um, I uh, 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 become educated by my commentators. So another one of these is what I call the sort of the 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 uh, the um, you know why is anyone playing this game question? That is to say, if one one can look at financial history going back a couple of decades now, at least thirty years, we see some some trades that are kind of the precursors of, of the modern Wall Street. And that is, the, the precursor would be a company called Bankers Trust Company that really invented uh, what we know as a modern swap transaction. And Bankers Trust Company went out and they did, some biz they did a couple of very complicated swaps with some Main Street American corporations. One of them was Gibson Greeting Cards. The other of these companies was Procter & Gamble. And they basically ripped off these customers. They basically sold them swap transactions that these companies thought were sort of even bets, were hedging certain um, uh, 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 positions in, in foreign exchange and interest rates that these companies had. And it turned out that the probability of there being a payoff for these manufacturing firms was very small. And, and, and the payoff to, to the bank or trust company was very large. Um, uh, uh, and these firms ended up losing millions and millions of dollars on these trades. And they ended up saying, we're really unhappy with Bankers Trust Company. We're not going to do business with you anymore. Bankers Trust won the short-term battle because they made millions of dollars on these trades. They lost the long-term reputational war because Bankers Trust, nobody wanted to do business with Bankers Trust anymore. They're, 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 they disappeared. They're eventually taken over by Deutsche Bank. And then the brand had no value. So it was, essentially, it was, it was phased out. Now we see in the abacus trade that Goldman Sachs did as one example, but the kinds of trades that basically drove bankers' trust company out of business are now common on Wall Street. And, and, and I want to uh, explore, you know, how is it the case? That is to say, after, you know, what is it that would, would cause someone like a, the treasury to function at, at Gibson Greeting Cards or Procter & Gamble? What, do, what is it? that would motivate these managers, these folks, to enter into a trade with a banker's trust company, or with a Goldman Sachs. Um, and so it just, it seems to me they're, 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 they're only, um, uh, you know, kind of three possible answers to that question. So why is someone kind of playing uh, this game? Well, actually, I, let me change that. I, I would say there are really kind of they're really uh, in, in kind of uh, 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 three and a half or four possible. Um, so, so one one uh, a possibility is what I call the you know the, sort of the 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 hedge fund explanation, which is I believe that I have the in-house expertise and sophistication to figure out exactly the payoff 
structure of this trade, figure out the probability of my making money, losing money, what interest rates and other macroeconomic factors have to have to do in the future for me to make money or to lose money. And I could just, I'm a big grown up and I can sort of fend for myself. So that, that's one, and, 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 and that's one possibility. Um, another possibility is that I, I, I go onto the FCC's website and I say, I read that they're the, they're the, they protect investors. And I say that there's, a, there's an anti-churning rule. They can't just do trades with me for the sake of making commissions. There's a know thy customer rule. They have to make a, do a trade with me that, that, that makes some sense uh, for me. There's a suitability rule. The trade has to be suitable for my particular risk tolerances and, and investment objectives. So I kind of think that, that I'm protected by, by regulation, rightly or, or wrongly. Or if I don't think that I have the expertise and I've kind of lived through the Bernie Madoff saga and I don't believe that regulation is really going to protect me necessarily despite the good intentions of the regulators, another possibility is, um, is uh, reputation. I think, you know, I kind of go back to the old-fashioned traditional notion. I think, well, these firms are not going to rip me off because... They, it would hurt their reputation. They need counterparties. They need people they're doing business with. So maybe reputation can help me. And then I look at, I look at some of these transactions that, that have been entered into where they seem to be heads I win, tails the counterparty loses. And I think, well, if, if I can't, I'm not protected by regulation, I'm not protected by expertise, maybe reputation. Now, I, it was a fourth one. There's a fourth one, which is... Um, um, and, and uh, relates to the Akerlof lemon problem that we talked about before. That there's a there's what I call the the Hank Paulson uh, possibility, which is I know I don't trust these people. Uh, I don't think I can fend for myself. I don't think regulations can protect me. But I think that I'm on the same side of the trade as these guys, right? So you think about the Abacus trade. I don't know if you're. This is the very famous trade with. Um, the fabulous Fabrice Torre, where um, uh, Goldman Sachs was in, it was putting together a, a complex uh, 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 bet on uh, uh, on mortgage derivatives, and they were selling these to these European, German, and Swiss financial institutions, uh, who were going long, betting that the mortgage market was going to continue to do well. They had a client, Hank Paulson, who was who was wanted to short the mortgage market, wanted to short this, these uh, financial assets. And, and the allegations are that the Goldman Sachs allowed Mr. Paulson not only to take the, the short side of this trade, which is the side Goldman was taking, but also to choose the, the precise assets that were going to be in the portfolio that he was then going to bet against, unbeknownst to the long side of, of the trade. So, you know... John, John, I, th I think you mean John, not Hank. I get those two guys mixed up. I'm sorry. Thank you, Harvey. Um, uh, so, yeah, John Paulson. Different crimes. S different, different. So, so you know, clearly, if I think that I'm, if I'm, I think that I'm whichever Paul, the John Paulson, uh, in this transaction, um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, participating in this trade uh, with, with Goldman. So, so that Goldman Sachs. So that's, that's, it's sort of like in the in the Akerlof's lemon idea that if you know. If I'm selling the bad used car, um, I'm not. I'm okay. It's only the buyer who's really, you know, the subject of this Akerlof's lemon, lemon problem. So, so the the idea is that, um, you know, the idea is that, in my view, looking at the world we live in today, um, 
you know, the, 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 uh, the only rational people that I can see really involved in this market are this kind of fourth category. Uh, which and no one, you know, and 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 and, and it's an exclusive group that that uh, you know is by invitation only. Um, and and if that's if that's the way things are in the marketplace, then I don't think it's sustainable. And that and that um, in my view, if we really get to a point, I don't know, we're we're heading there. I'm not sure we're all the way there yet, where. We people people have s significant doubts about their own expertise, so we're in a kind of a non-hubris zone, if you will. And we have we have notwithstanding whatever the efficacy of of regulation might be, we're in a world where people don't think regulation works very well, uh, and we're in a world where people are cynical about reputation. Then people are going to withdraw from the market. We're in kind of an Akerlof world unless they think they're on the same side as the as the. As the uh, as the people they're dealing with as these investment firms, and so we're in a world where then we're back. You know, we're, we're, we may be heading in an optimistic direction where where firms have incentives once again to invest in reputation. We've seen some some small, slight signs that we may be heading back in this direction, but it's very difficult. Now I want to do I have like five yes, So I want to and, and, and there, the pro, we have an acute problem in finance for a couple of reasons um, that, that are just exo they're just uh, the way the world has become and, and, and as a result of technology and other factors. And I want to mention a couple of these. One is a, a major sea change in the reputational world in addition to the world that I just described where reputation seems to be less a part of the business model because it's been replaced by all these these regulatory uh, motivations for uh, uh, retaining firms. There's also the problem that we've had an uncoupling of individual reputations of people from firm reputation. That is, it used to be the case that um, if you work for a, for, a, for a big Wall Street law firm or a big accounting firm or an investment bank, um, you would essentially, your fate was tied to the fate of your company. You would, in essence, sink with the ship or rise if the tide happened to, to bring the ship up. So, so um, uh, th that is to say, you know, th th that people would hire law firms. People would hire investment banks. Now, we have much better information technology. We, we have much, we have information not just about at the kind of retail um, uh, or, or not at the sort of wholesale corporate level, but at the, at the individual level. So when people hire law firms, they say, well, you know, if I have an SEC problem, I want to go to, you know, the folks at Freed Frank. If I, may, I have a tax problem, maybe I go to Cravath. If I want to mount a takeover defense, maybe I go to Wachtell. We we're pick people. We pick investment bankers, not investment banks. So, you know, they're easy to show examples of this. Arthur Anderson fails. Arthur Anderson goes out of business. Clearly, the guys who are indicted, like David Duncan and the people in the Houston team that were, uh, you know, shredding Enron's documents, they have big problems in terms of employability. The other professional accountants at Arthur Anderson are not out of work. They go to work, they, they take their audit clients with them and move seamlessly to other accounting firms. Lehman Brothers is allowed to fail, as we're told by the government. Um, Lehman Brothers fails. But the investment bankers in Lehman Brothers, the professionals, highly paid, move seamlessly to 
the plurality to Barclays, but to other, other firms. Similarly, on Wall Street, this Dewey and LaBeouf, very big, uh, prestigious, long, lived Wall Street firm, law firm, files for bankruptcy. The, the, the partners in this firm, um, uh, obviously, certainly the ones with their own cases and the ones able doing the work for the people who are the rainmakers, move to other law firms. It's not that this, they're, they're, they, they, that, that, um, uh, so, so we see situations where people are, professionals are not going down with the ship anymore. A consequence of that is that rational, self-interested professionals in these, in these industries don't really care as much as they used to, certainly as much as they used to when they were partners in general partnerships at, at these law firms or accounting firms or, or investment banks with how the firm does because their reputations is to a very large extent uncoupled with the reputations of their firms. And the higher you go up in the hierarchy, the less, interestingly, less tightly coupled your reputation is to the reputation of the firm. Another big problem we have on Wall Street in terms of thinking about how to get out of this morass and go back into a world in which people are investing in their reputation is technologically it is much harder for a firm selling financial assets to make a credible commitment that it's trustworthy than it is for a manufacturing firm. And that's just because of the nature of the product being sold. If I'm making software or I'm making cars or refrigerators, and I know, because I'm the manufacturer, that my product is safe, that it's not going to break, and people don't trust me, there's an easy market solution to this problem, which is the warranty. The market thinks 15% of my products are going to break. I know, because of internal testing, that less than 1% will break. I say, I'll give, you a, uh, I'll give you a warranty if the thing breaks. And I can charge you very little for the warranty because I know what my loss experience is going to be. I can fix that. If you're selling a financial asset, it doesn't have this insurability characteristic. If I'm selling a bond, uh, uh, it's not that one bond is going to default. They're all going to default if any of them defaults. That we have this sort of one-way uh, uh, ratcheting effect. Is one Another problem with kind of reputation is it's unlike manufactured products, it's often extremely difficult because risk is so hard to measure. It's hard to know when one experiences a loss in the purchase of a financial asset, whether this loss was in the reasonable, foreseeable, what something you know what, what was kind of part of the bargain, or whether the product was actually riskier than it was marketed to be. One cannot simply say that, well, I, you know, my investment portfolio, portfolio did not beat the S&P 500, therefore I was defrauded. That's clearly not true. It could, there are many reasons. It could be that we were taking a much riskier position in hopes for much greater payoffs. And as it, with any risky position, there are a higher probability of, of bad outcomes occurring. Um, so it's just, it's just very difficult to break through this, these problems of not, un, not being able to have a warranty and not being able to to distinguish uh, uh, kind of honest from dishonest firms. It may, means that it really is the case in terms of the reputation in this financial space that it takes a very long time um, to build up a reputation. It's very quick to lose it. And we really do, and I'll, I'll end with this. So but the basic bottom line I have is um, we live in what I would call in, in finance a post-reputational age where reputation is the reputation of, of 
companies in this space. We are in an, an era of individual reputation, certainly. Um, and it's and there, it's going to be interesting. And I think that there's going to have to be some major major evolutions in on Wall Street to to, to see how how uh, things will proceed in the future in light of the fact that we are in this post reputational environment. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, uh, it, it sounds like for good or bad that financial products aren't exactly like toasters after all. Well, let me hand over the podium to Damon. Great. Um, well, look, first, let me t uh, say what a, what a pleasure it is to be here, um, uh, and particularly to review Jonathan's, to speak on Jonathan's book. Um, the, um, th this book was a pleasure to read for several reasons. Uh, one, as you've already heard, it's an extremely clear uh, an incisive account of many of the most important episodes in, in recent American financial history. Right? If you want to understand what happened uh, in, in, in the abacus trade or in the, uh, or in the now long forgotten but very important bankers trust uh, derivative scandals, uh, I, I highly recommend this book to you. It's just a way of understanding the, the mechanics of what happened. Um, and I, and I, can't res I can't resist noting I was introduced as having been, you know, a long time ago, a summer fellow at the SEC. <laughs> it's it's a quite um, makes me feel good to be sitting next to the former as a, as a summer fellow to be sitting next to the former chairman. Uh, but I also have to tell you something about being a summer fellow. Um, so I walked into the enforcement division of the SEC out of my second, out of my first year in business school. I'd been to law school for a year. I sat down in this little, somewhat unglamorous office, and an, enforce, uh, 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 an enforcement attorney said to me, well, you've been to business school. You know something about numbers. Um, why don't you listen to these tapes and tell me what they mean? <laughs> and what he handed, and he handed me a box of tapes, and what it was was the banker's trust tapes. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh -oh. So, um, uh, so, you know, and so part of... still be around if it weren't for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was only there for six weeks. And, 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 and my level of understanding, I got the gist of it, but my level of technical understanding was uh, left something to be desired. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the larger point is that for me, this book has a particular resonance because in, in various ways, I was personally involved in a lot of this uh, as a representative of victims, as a as an observer, uh, as a variety, in a variety of roles. And so I speak with some experience when I say these are this is a very clear and, and well done account of these very important episodes. Now, I think you could summarize this book in a way by reference, as I often do, to movies. Uh, some of you may have seen the movie Wall Street. And in the movie Wall Street, which, is, which, was made and, which was made and is about, I think, what Jonathan identifies as the sort of hinge moment. It's right in the sort of hinge moment in, 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 his, in his narrative. In the movie Wall Street, the, the, the young, naive Charlie Sheen uh, walks into a brokerage office to work, and you know, he's got a bad, this bad guy, and a good, it's like a good angel and a bad angel. And the good angel is Hal Holbrook. And Hal Holbrook's got this, like, this cane and everything, and he's, he's very, very old school. And he basically says to Charlie Sheen, reputation is everything. Right? This, book is, this book is the revenge of Hal Holbrook's character. Right? <laughs> that, that's what this book is. A and, but it raises, a, uh, it raises um, some really deep questions about things that are broader than finance, which is what I want to talk about, because I'm really interested in these questions. And the deep question, it seems to me, it really raises and gets into in the context of our recent history 
is the issue of what is the relationship between social mores and markets? And to what extent is the, is the proper functioning of a market economy dependent on certain types of social mores? Right? And why do they arise? How are they maintained? Why do they decay? Can they be rebuilt? So I, you know, I, I, I was so impressed by the way in which this book really tries to grapple with that that I went and dug up my somewhat dusty copy of Adam Smith's Moral Sentiments, uh, which is, I think, the first sort of serious effort to grapple with this question, and tried to see what, 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 we, what, he, has, what he had to say about it. And, and, and you know, what, what he argues in that book is that, is that um, in a variety of ways, the people's concern for, for themselves in a broad sense for, for the respect others have for them, right, is critical to a properly functioning market economy. And that's, in a way, what this book is about. And the question, and, and the same thing, by the way, motivate, uh, and, and it's not, there's a whole section on Max Weber in the book, but it's not about this aspect of Max Weber. Weber's uh, attempt to understand the relationship of Protestant uh, ethic to, to the rise of successful capitalism is about, is about the same question. Can a, can a pure kind of self-interest, pure narrowly self-interested market logic sustain, sustain a working uh, market economy? And I think the answer that, 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 that Jonathan says is no, it can't. Right? Now, the challenge that, the, the challenge that I would raise to Jonathan is the, is the challenge of do we have the historical narrative right and do we understand the sources of, its of where it came from in the US financial system Assuming that we agree, and I'll, stip, I'll just stick to this, that there was an era when the Howell Holbrooks had some purchase in Wall Street. Right? What, what were the origins of that era, and why did it decline? Right? And it seems to me that there are three features of that era that are critical to understand, and that um, I, I'm not sure are, are fully fleshed out in the book. And, and that may be because Jonathan doesn't agree with me about what those features are, and I, and I, will, and I hope we'll, we'll be able to discuss this later. The first feature he does talk about in his book, and he talks about it extensively, and it's, and it's important, and he's right about it. And that is the, the fact that financial firms were limited partner, were, were not limited partnerships, they were general partnerships. And that <clears throat> the principles of these firms during, you know, the, the pre, during the uh, essentially pre-1990s Ameri uh, American financial system, you were on the hook totally, right? This is, this is, this feature and its disappearance, I think, is a very important thing. And it's an interesting story. I think that folks from Cato would agree. It's an interesting story about government subsidy. Right? Because fundamentally, that's what, the limited, that's what the limited liability structure is. It's a government subsidy. The second feature is there are two other features that are not mentioned in Jonathan's account that I think are really important. And it depends, of course, on when you believe or the, the, when you believe this system of reputation evolved in the US financial system. Now, I would argue that it's, it was present all along, and that it was particularly important in the 19th century, uh, because these issues of not knowing who you were dealing with, uh, were, and not being able to find out, uh, were, were much more profound in the 19th century economy than they are today, than they, than they were in, say, the mid-century economy. But that, <clears throat> The things that really put it in place initially were essentially voluntary organizations. That, 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 that in, in the late 19th century, the rise of accounting as a profession, led by, of all people, Arthur Anderson, uh, the, the American Bar Association, the, the, uh, the stock exchanges, and which are discussed in, the, in, in Jonathan's book, 
these institutions began to put in place structures for for institutionalizing reputation as a role, as a function in the financial system. But that this was augmented in major ways by two profoundly government features, government-driven features of the financial system in the 20th century. And the first, which came, the first was the, re the regulation of, fee of trading fees, the regulation of, of, um, uh, 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 of the cost of trading, which was in place from the New Deal to the mid-1970s, and which, when dismantled, triggered a whole series of developments within the businesses that, that heavily impacted the role of reputation. You could, in a simplistic way, and it is simplistic, but in a simplistic way, you could say that with fees out of competition, people competed on reputation. The second thing, and this is truly heresy in this building, but I think that's what I was brought here to do, uh, <coughs> the compression of economic inequality during most of the 20th century in the United States by a combination of high tax rates, strong IRS enforcement, uh, and the enforcement of reputation, and Jonathan does talk about this a little bit, by a far more aggressive and punitive SEC right, in, the, in the immediate post-war era. Now, why does compression of economic inequality matter? In the aftermath of Enron, I was on a, a, a body set up by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences with my uh, former uh, uh, chancellor, Chancellor Allen, to look at the sources of what, what went wrong, particularly around Arthur Anderson. And one of the things that Chancellor Allen really kind of pounded the table about, and that I agreed with him about, was that, uh, that a collapse of the, the, that what had happened was a collapse of the idea of professionalism in gatekeepers. And this is, I think, just another set of words for reputational issues. And for what Max Weber, to come back again to him, would call voc the, the vocation, the notion of some of these roles as vocations. Meaning, I'm not sure you'd call them non-market, but rather that the, that the good the value sought by participants in these activities was non-monetary. Right? And this was a particularly easy thing to, not easy, but a particularly possible thing to do in an environment in which the $10 million salary was not really available, and if you got it, it was mostly taxed away, which, is, which was the post-war reality. Right? And if you think about what Jonathan talks about in his book, which is that what, what, what is that term? It's, it's not walk-away money. It's, there's a term. Legacy wealth? Legacy wealth, right? The idea that you cheat once, and if you cheat big enough, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you afterwards. Now, I'm going to close my, my little brief run. I hope I haven't, haven't uh, ex exceeded my time here. I'm going to close by telling you uh, something that I observed over watching, over being in part of these dynamics, right? Having had this extraordinary experience of walking into the board of the New York Stock Exchange to discuss with them Dick Grasso's salary on the morning, with a prepared text, right? On the morning that it was revealed that his salary was actually double what everybody thought it was, right? <laughs> so I had like I had this, this prepared text discussing what his salary was, you know, and doing all that kind of stuff that you do when you're giving, you know, being respectful and all that. And I, and you know, half asleep on the shuttle on the way up to New York, I figured out by looking at the newspaper that in fact, you know, <laughs> he had been lying, right? And watching Dick Grasso move through that experience, uh, a similar experience uh, with the head of Pfizer, whose name suddenly escapes me. Um, I'm sorry? Hank McKinnell, exactly. 
Uh, a similar experience with Bob Georgine, who was the uh, head of the Building and Construction Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, um, uh, who, um, in, my view, in my view, stole a lot of money. Uh, each of these experiences was an experience of the legacy wealth phenomenon, of watching individuals. And, and, and my view of, of each of these people, by the way, was that they were fundamentally deluded were fundamentally deluded about what was important to them in life. They didn't know themselves, right? But watching each of these individuals being, uh, <clears throat> watching each of these individuals being offered a choice. And the choice was, on the one hand, take a truly stupendous amount of money and be utterly ruined reputationally. And as a result, and this is a little bit against what Jonathan was talking about, and as, a, and as a result, not being allowed to do what really seemed to motivate them in life. But, you know, but, you know getting a mountain of money. I mean, a giant mountain of money. Choice one. Choice two being to take half a mountain of money. <coughs> to be able to continue in the, in the thing, in the vocation that they had. Right? And I think there's no way to look at DeGrasso and his role in the New York Stock Exchange and not say that the man had a vocation. And to do so with reputation intact and perhaps enhanced. Right? On that morning that I did that testimony at the New York Stock Exchange, if Dick Grasso had said, I'd never anticipated I would get this much money, here's half of it back, the man would have been a hero. There's no question about that. And to watch individual after individual take the giant mountain of money, be driven from public life, Right? and be unable to really reappear in any meaningful sense in the roles that they had played in life before. Now, I, don't know what, I don't know what Dick Grasso or Hank McKinnell has done with all that money, but they certainly haven't done what, it, what appeared to give them joy in life. These seem to be examples of the decay of this kind of ethical spirit that is critical not only in people's individuals' lives, but in the working of of a market system. It's very hard to correct for it. And, and I think, as most of you know, um, I'm an advocate of strong regulation. And I've made some points here about how the, the, the notion that these things are in conflict is not necessarily so. But, uh, but I do not believe that strong regulation can correct for the decay of the mores necessary for a successful market economy. I, I, and, and we have to think about how to rebuild them. And I think the key to rebuilding them is, un, is how to foster <laughs> notions of Within, the, within a financial system, how to foster notions of vocation and commitment that go beyond, uh, the, th that are able to counteract the legacy money, and to not make the legacy money so easily available. Because, it is because I think the examples I give are very sophisticated and experienced people. You put $100 million on the table and say, you just have to act like a horrible person once, and here's $100 million? And that is no joke what the deal is, right? That warps people in ways that it's hard to imagine until you see it happen. And I'll stop right there. Thank you, Damon. Uh, Chairman Pitt. It's very clever. They have a cup holder here. Magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, a gracious good afternoon to everyone. I'm uh, uh, pleased to be here. Uh, I've known um, <coughs> Professor Macy for 
a considerably long period of time, probably longer than he wishes, but um, <laughs> not so for me, uh, and had the pleasure of um, uh, co-teaching a class on corporate governance with him. Um, he's brilliant, and I think he's written an excellent book that's well worth reading. Um, but, um, and there's always about, you know, um, it reminds me when my youngest son was about six, he used to say, start sentences by saying, no offense, dad, but, <laughs> and I always knew that whatever was going to come after the but was really going to be awful. Uh, and it always was. He never disappointed. But let me say this about the book. I think it's provocative. I think it uh, needs to be discussed and read. Um, uh, and I'm not really critical of it, but I think in some respects um, it may prove too much, and in some respects it may address too little. Um, let me um, uh, say that I think the starting point is, um, could we have the most <coughs> excuse me, effective and efficient capital markets um, if we lacked government setting normative standards? Um, my answer to that is no. Uh, it's not that I'm um, an advocate of more regulation and so on. I'm not. Uh, but I'm also not an advocate of less regulation. Um, the problem has never been too much or too little regulation. The problem has been a lack of smart regulation. Um, so if you start <clears throat> with the um, assumption that the problem can't be the mere existence of regulation per se, that is, we have to have something that prevents one group in our society from uh, beating the bejeebers out of another group in society. And even if it's done in financial markets and it's not done physically, it's still being beaten. So um, what is the problem? And of course, even if I were wrong on that, um, and that regulation per se is the problem, there's no way we can go back. <clears throat> so. To me, the starting point is to try to figure out what causes this problem, because Professor Macy is absolutely right. We have a serious problem. Uh, the regulation we have has been completely ineffective. And for those of you who might, and maybe not in this audience, have a glimmer of hope that Dodd-Frank is going to solve that problem, uh, let me break the bad news to you. Um, there isn't a prayer. Um, as I'm fond of noting, when Congress wanted to tell the financial services industry how to behave, it took 2,313 pages, each dripping with multiple unintended consequences. When God wanted to tell the human race how to behave, it took two tablets and 10 commandments. Just compare the two. I think it is quite revealing what's wrong with our regulatory system. Um, but what is the problem? All right, first, I think, <clears throat> of course, is bad regulation. Um, nobody can question that we have a lot of bad regulations, and Professor Macy points that out. But you know, um, 
people always like to help things along. So if you look at the credit rating agencies, for example, uh, one example uh, that uh, Professor Macy gives, and a perfect one as to how the SEC's regulations were absolutely abominable. It, it, and when I came in, I had no idea that we even had something called an NRSRO. And I thought I knew something about the securities laws at the time. But then look at how the credit rating agencies dealt with that. Anytime anyone wanted to challenge their credit rating, <coughs> they cite the First Amendment. And they say, we can't be sued over our uh, ratings. Um, that was startling. I think what made it more startling is that there are courts that agree with that. And if the courts agree with that, um, then of what value are those ratings anyway? If I can't have real liability for my ratings, forget what the government did to establish me as something uh, wonderful. Um, I don't have any liability if I don't do due diligence. So it's the business community contributed to this. I'm not saying the regulations weren't relevant, but by themselves, they may not have been sufficient. It took more. And the credit rating agencies were just one group. You look at financial statement accountant. The um, <coughs> excuse me, major accounting firms all say, whoa, those aren't our financial statements. Not only aren't they our financial statements, we have no responsibility to find fraud. Okay? Now, in the case of the accountants, you wouldn't know that they have no responsibility to find fraud if you looked at all of the cases against the accounting firm every time there is a fraud. Um, but the accountants still maintain that's not our function. Why wouldn't the accountants say, you know, we'll look for fraud, but it's going to cost you, and we're going to have to do the job more thoroughly. That's what forensic accountants claim to do. So I think regulations were bad, <coughs> excuse me, but I think the business community gave them um, worse um, uh, coverage. Um, what's another problem? Uh, it's terrible if you take bad regulations by themselves, but if you add in bad regulators or, um, dare I say, it, stupid regulators, um, this is now something that produces real problems. So if you have people who are regulating and they don't understand what it is they're regulating, and they are the ones who are writing and enforcing the rules, I mean, this is a prescription for disaster, which is what we had. Um, so um, uh, that's yet another cause. <coughs> Excuse me. An another cause has nothing to do, per se, with regulation, but it involves the improper use of enforcement. Um, uh, the um, issues, and um, uh, Professor Macy talked about the Goldman Sachs case. If you read the allegations in the SEC's complaint, this is and was a plain vanilla fraud. The problem, as I see it is, and you'll forgive me for this, you have one group of incredibly rich people um, 
uh, taking advantage of another group of incredibly rich people. Why on earth should our government um, give two figs about something like that? Um, that's not where we need the government. These people can take care of themselves. If Goldman didn't tell uh, their customers what they should have done, let their customers sue. Why is the government doing it? <coughs> In any event, um, we've got a lot of litigation. And one of the problems with litigation goes back um, to one of my favorite subjects, which is parenting. You know, if you constantly uh, berate your children and you constantly punish them, several things happen. The first is they become what we used to refer to, although it's not PC, they become mommy deaf, all right? You can't keep berating your children because they'll stop listening to the beratings. They'll say, no matter what I do, I'm just gonna get berated. Um, and if you also keep punishing them, um, then the punishment no longer matters. If you're really worried about reputation, um, it matters when you're the only one singled out. But if everyone you play with in the capital markets is being sued every single day for the same exact things, at some point you just shrug and say, okay, that's just the cost of doing business. So why worry about it? The um, pressure to produce more enforcement actions um, instead of better enforcement actions, such as those are <coughs> arising out of the economic meltdown from 2007 and eight, those would have been good cases to bring. They weren't brought, they're still not being brought. Lehman Brothers was the biggest bankruptcy in the history of this country. And there's not a single enforcement action to um, address some of the problems. I'll tell you, um, in my view, uh, to quote our former Secretary of State, it takes a village to produce a bankruptcy like Lehman Brothers, but nobody was named. Um, the, um, the last sort of potential problem is what I have often referred to as reverse laissez-faire. But this is the um, approach of the business community um, that says, um, we're just gonna sit back and wait until somebody tells us whether what we're doing is wrong, why it's wrong, and how it has to be fixed. And um, like, like Damon, <coughs> I'm a big movie buff. One of my favorites is Casablanca. And you may remember Claude Braids, um, uh, who played um, uh, uh, Captain Renault, um, was ordered by the Nazis to shut down Humphrey Bogart's uh, cafe. Um, and he had to come up with a reason. And so, um, <coughs> He shuts them down, and Bogart says, why are you shutting us down? And Claude Rains says, I'm shocked, shocked to discover that there's gambling going on, at which time one of Humphrey Bogart's employees comes up to Claude Rains and says, here are your uh, gambling winnings, sir. <laughs> um, 
the fact is the government, is uh, the business community is shocked when they don't like government's answers. Um, <clears throat> so um, uh, if you look at all of this, uh, you have to say um, there must be better solutions to this. And reputation by itself will go a long way, but it won't solve everything. It seems to me, um, first, we need smarter regulations, but they have to be written by economists, not by lawyers. Um, if you think the regulatory scheme is bad now, just bear in mind that since the year 2004, the US Securities and Exchange Commission has lost every contested rulemaking with which it has been challenged. Every single one. Um, that means that we are looking at regulation by enforcement. And if you don't like the current state of regulation, and I don't, you're just going to love regulation by enforcement. So we need economists writing these rules, not lawyers. It has to be done better. The rules have to be narrower. Um, and the business community has to lead. If you look at what happened in 2007 and 8, it was a true crisis. Where was the business community solutions? They practiced reverse laissez-faire. And now we're all stuck with Dodd-Frank. And it's been followed by the Jobs Act, which is a great um, a philosophical piece of legislation. But um, if you read it, you'll see that Congress has now decided that for some things, it's going to write the rules. And as bad as I think the current set of rules we have are, when Congress writes them, they're really terrible. So we really need um, more focused solutions. And that will come with people caring about reputation, but also people caring about effective regulation. Thank you. Well, as an economist who spent a good part of his career writing regulations and statutes, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, <laughs> it's the latter part of it. Uh, before we open up to questions, I want to give John, see if Jonathan wants to take a minute to respond to anything that Damon and uh, sure. Harvey has said. No obligation. Well, these were great comments. Uh, very beneficial. I'm, I'm, I guess selfishly, I, I'm kind of glad I only got them after I'd written the book. I probably would have been a little paralyzed by some of these are very uh, uh, penetrating, I thought. I do want to make a couple of comments on both, um, on both commentators because um, I think they're extremely important issues. Um, let me f I'll just focus on uh, them very narrowly because I do want to have some time for participation. One is on, on Damon's point about uh, um, this uh, notion of the decay of ethical spirit being that's critical to a market system. I, I think this is an extremely important point. Um, and I want to I wanna raise two issues about it. One is um, the issue of causation is extremely important. And what, what I mean by that is um, uh, that um, when we, uh, we observe a clearly a correlation 
between a strong market system and strong system of morals. And exactly the way Damon described, I could not agree with that more. I wanna, my, my point though is the causality is not necessarily uh, so clear. And what I mean by that is, uh, I believe it's, in my view, this is kind of categorically the case that where it is in people's economic self-interest to have a commitment to strong ethical norms, people will, in fact, have a strong commitment to ethical norms. And, as, as Damon points out, if the stakes of kind of... Um, of uh, of, of departing from strong ethical norms in maybe say a one-shot fraud where one can obtain legacy wealth of 100 million, we're going to see we're going to see a a uh, a, a departure. Um, and so one um, one thing that that I think is a is a significant challenge as we go about the very um, important kind of task of trying to think. Uh, carefully, as, as, as Damon has challenged me to do, about the relationship between having, you know, ethical and social mores, um, and their relationship to a to a functioning uh, market system, is that um, I'm not sure that having, uh, you know, that 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 we don't we we want to I don't think we want to abandon self-interest. That we want to make it in people's self-interest to have strong social mores, and that, in a nutshell, is really what what the economics of reputation was trying to get at. A hard issue is, and something that it, I don't think it's been adequately explored, is the effect that regulation has on, um, on, on, on social mores. And, 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 and there are a lot of, this is too much to talk about now, but I just want to raise a couple of points. One is clearly, uh, as Damon was pointing out, to the extent that regulation, and, and Harvey made this point also, to the extent that regulation can have a, a and, and, and even enforcement actions can have a shaming effect, then they're strongly, they can be, they can be strongly reinforcing of, um, of uh, social norms and social mores. Uh, we're, we, and, and, but that ship has sailed. Maybe it, we can bring it back into harbor, but as Harvey was saying, you can't find a firm on Wall Street, literally, that has not been targeted. It's no longer stigmatizing, unfortunately, perhaps, to be the target of an SEC enforcement action. We lost it. So, and there are other regulations, and I'll, 10B51 is something I've been doing research on lately, where you had a system of insiders regulating their own trading in a private ordering sphere that gets displaced by SEC rulemaking in the form of a rule 10b51, which says you got to make up these little plans and you follow these plans, which led to people abandoning the the sort of ethical approach to these trading issues and saying, well, I'm going to look at the, the, my ethical world is going to be defined by this regulation. And if I can trade in a way that brings me a lot of money, but is consistent with these regulations, I'm going to do so. And statistically, that's exactly what we've seen is insider trading returns have jumped up significantly after this rule uh, was was promulgated. Now, turning briefly to to uh, a little to, to some of what um, what Harvey was saying, I, I really um, uh, 
think, you know, Harvey has what I would describe as a, a, a from a very reputable um, kind of long line of political philosophy, a sort of a, a you know, a, a Hobbesian view that uh, absent a, you know, absent a regulation, um, uh, we're, we're going to be in this sort of world of all against all. And, and so we have to have a situ- some kind of regulation to keep the, the big, strong guys from beating up on the on the little uh, guys, um, the the question that I have is, um, the, the, or the point that I want to make in response is simply to say there has to be a point at which regulation is no longer um, efficacious. Or to put it another way to put it is, one of the things that's so difficult for those of us who study the SEC is that we see the world exactly as Harvey described it, which is the SEC regulation isn't working very well to an objective observer, regardless of sort of political stripe. But at the same time, critics like myself have to, I have to acknowledge, I think, to be honest, that the problem is not corruption. The SEC, the folks at the SEC really aren't corrupt. They're not taking bribes. This is not the frontier of, you know, the border of, of, of uh, you know, Rwanda or Nigeria or something. Uh, these regulators are also are not stupid. They may not be the most brilliant people in the world. They may not be, uh, 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 but but on the other hand, they're they're you know pretty bright. They're uh, pretty bright uh, folks. Um, but the problem is, I think the the problem that that I think we have to face up to, and and it, re- respectfully, is that we have assigned these regulators an impossible task. We've essentially assigned them really the same task that we, you know, that that um, uh, you know that 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 we assign to central planners, and they would say that 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 there's no corner of the financial inst- uh, markets that we do not. Uh, consider to be uh, fair game for regulation, uh, and that uh, and that you know even in areas where kind of private ordering doesn't seem to be creating massive problems, there's an urge to fill that vacuum with with regulation. So, uh, you know, the problem is you know that that we have to define some scope, and I think that scope's got to be somewhat you know significantly. Uh, short of where we are now, in saying this is the area where there can be value added. I, you know, clearly, uh, you know, Richard Epstein would say, you know, uh, night watchman state enforcing contracts. I'm all in favor of that. You know, and and the, but on the other hand, uh, micromanagement of firms and and measuring risk is it's just not reasonable to expect regulators to to produce these kinds of uh, results. So, you know, we just have to be realistic in what our expectations are. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And I I want to emphasize, because we we only touched on it uh, briefly, but uh, parts of the book that I enjoyed the most were some of the latter chapters. I mean, for instance, one of the chapters is, you know, the SEC is captured and happy about it. Uh, And some of that discussion of why I don't think we can really expect the SEC. And of course, uh, some of the incentives behind what, Chairman Pitt mentioned in terms of why are we protecting sophisticated regulator uh, investors rather than retail, and uh, why are we going after everybody rather than trying to distinguish it. So much of that is explained in the book, and, and I think we really would encourage uh, people to read with that. So before I start with questions, let me first say, please wait to be called upon. Please wait until the microphone gets to you. Uh, please actually ask a question rather than a statement. Uh, and with that, let me open it up uh, here in the back.
Hi, I'm uh, Christopher Neubauer from The Urban Libertarian, which is a website in New York where we try and provide libertarian perspectives on urban environments. And my question is more, we've talked a lot about how, you know, regulators and what we can do to sort of at Wall Street in order to restore this integrity and reputation, but what can Wall Street do, you know, as organizations in order to increase the way that they're viewed to the public? I think that's a great question. It, you know, one of the challenges to me intellectually in this project is the fact that um, uh, the if this description of, 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 of you know, us living in a post-reputational world is accurate, um, the, the, the financial results of these firms does not really appear to be showing that, you know. Goldman Sachs is doing extremely well, notwithstanding Macy's protestations about their, you know, the, the demise of their of their reputation. So, I mean, my view of this is, not, I'm sure this will come as no surprise, is simply the, these firms will start caring about their reputation when it's in their interest to care about their reputation, which I think it used to be. I don't think it long any it, it, it is any longer. And then your question is, so then I come to really your question, which is, okay, let's assume that they start to care about their reputation. What then can they can they do about it? Um, you know, it's basically reputation building is like any other form of investment. It takes time and money. So basically what these firms have to do is incur costs which show people that they are, uh, 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 they're putting their own, uh, the, the interests of their clients, their counterparties, whatever, ahead of their own private interests. That's the nature of being a fiduciary. It's costly to do this, and the notion is, the people will do it if the benefits outweigh the, the cost. So the idea is that you, you enter into a trade, and, and, and if, if it, it, things uh, you know, turn out horribly for the customer, there may be circumstances where a firm will incur costs to unravel the trade. You know, in other words, if you, if, you, if you listen to Lloyd Blankfein's congressional testimony to date, and he has every right to say this, he says, you know, we don't owe a fiduciary due to our customers. Our customers are counterparties. They fend for themselves, which is a perfectly appropriate view for him to take. Of course, in a, in a, in a, in a free economy, it's not the only approach he, could, he, he, he might take. He might decide to say, well, you know, actually, we really, you know, that's, uh, we believe that our, our, our value-maximizing strategy should be to, you know, we're really going to embrace the interests of our customers. Uh, they're, they're making money as principal, not as agent, and so it's not in their interest. Let me but I think they could uh, deal with it if they wanted to. See if Damon or Harvey have anything to add to that. Let, let me say that this is, um, I know a little bit about this experientially, right? So, I mean, let's just imagine that you were going to, well, w one remark, so people that I know who, who value their reputations, who work in the financial sector, um, seem to me are gravitating toward parts of the financial system where some of the things that, some of the pressures that exist in the large publicly traded firms are not present. Uh, so <clears throat> they're looking toward, uh, you know, uh, uh, smaller firms that have, do predominantly advisory work in some cases, uh, or toward kind of niches in money, you know, niches in money management where they have some control over, over sort of the economic trade-offs I'm about, I'm about to describe. So let's imagine for a moment that you were, that one was the you or I were the CEO of a firm that was determined a, a large firm, 
right? The one that would be consequential in the overall shape of the financial system. And then we were determined to change the reputational the, the reputation of that firm and the culture that underlay that reputation. Um, this may seem like a this may seem like a harsh thing to say, but in any firm uh, that has got reputational problems, there are people that symbolize those problems, right? And they are known, right? They are, they are uh, and I think there was there was some discussion of this in, in Professor Macy's book around Solomon Brothers. Uh, and you know what you do if you're intent on changing something? You fire them, right? And you make examples of people, right? That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is that you make in, in various visible ways to the senior management team clear decisions uh, that embody the reputation that you want to have. And as Professor Macy said a moment or two ago, that's going to cost you. Right? It's going to cost you in terms of foregoing business opportunities that will make immediate contributions to your P&L. And the real question about the financial system today in its current shape is whether or not that's a sustainable thing to do. Right? You know, whether if, you, if, if a management team chose to go that way and chose to go that way for real as opposed to pretending to go that way. And one of the, most, one of the more amusing parts of this book, by the way, is the discussion of Goldman Sachs' statements about their corporate culture and then, and then their assertion in court that, that uh, in fact, that, that these statements, <laughs> the, the, best one, <laughs> the best one was, the, the, our, what was it, our reputation is our most important asset. And then in court, when, when this was challenged in, in private litigation, they said, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just puffery. Uh, uh, it's, um, so, you know, how sustainable is that in the competitive environment that exists? How sustainable with the course of action I was just describing, right? In the competitive environment of the financial system today, how would that? How sustainable would that? Be, how sustainable would that be? And there are multiple angles to that. One angle is the very simple one of would your stockholders would would, would your stockholders approve? Of, of the short-term impact on your P&L. Second, and very serious thing, is what would happen to your talent pool? And this, and this is the legacy wealth issue. Right? If you're basically saying to folks, oh, by the way, right, that part of your upside in your career that is, that is about the, the kind of transaction that that guy, the fab guy, had, uh, again, in, in the abacus trade, if that's closed off to you, right, are you going to stick around? Right? Or are you going to go someplace where that opportunity, where that opportunity to make an unethical reputation-destroying $100 million is still available? Now, this, I, this, this goes to the, the, the this, this, this raises a deeper issue, which is the issue of causality around reputation and reputational cultures, and the question of, um, you know, is, is, uh, is, is an effective regulatory environment. Uh, does it erode reputational cultures, or is it necessary to support them? Um, I, I, uh, I guess with um, uh, due respect, I, I have to um, uh, take a, um, uh, a very different approach. I, I think the likelihood of any individual firm, particularly in um, the current uh, uh, structure of our capital markets, um, uh, engaging in its own individual private ordering is slim and none. Uh, uh, there's no economic incentive for it. Um, what I think has to happen is that people in the industry have to 
develop their own ethical standards for the industry. Firms can improve upon that. Um, uh, one sort of example of this, and this is why some of uh, Professor Macy's comments about my comments sort of surprised me because I agree with him. I'm a big advocate of private ordering. I'm just saying you can't get rid of all regulation. You have to have rules in a marketplace. If you don't, um, you're likely to have chaos. Um, but um, um, a good example of this was um, uh, when I was practicing law, and I admit I'm a recovering lawyer, um, but when I, when I did practice law, uh, one of my clients was the Investment Company Institute, which was a trade association for all mutual funds. A big issue arose about uh, portfolio managers trading for their own personal accounts. On the one hand, people in government thought this was hideous. Um, anyone who understood um, how portfolio managers function would say, this is fabulous. You've got somebody running a portfolio who's willing to put his money where his mouth is. The difficulty was, what if there were only a limited number of shares? Who was going to get them if you've got a portfolio manager trading for itself? And so what the ICI did, and it was only one of many examples of this, is it created a blue ribbon committee. It hired, obviously, uh, uh, me and my law firm to work on this. Um, but they, hired, they created a blue ribbon committee, and they came up with pronouncements about portfolio managers and uh, so on trading for their own accounts. It absolutely obviated the need for any regulation. The SEC backed off. Uh, they thought this was terrific. Now, they may have had some <coughs> criticisms. They may not have agreed with everything. That's what industry has to do. It has to lead. Um, if you don't think government is going to come up with the right answers, and I'm here to assure you that it won't, <laughs> then the um, industries themselves have to use their expertise to come up with a viable set of principles that everyone will follow. And then individual firms can obviously um, compete on the basis of the ways they differentiate themselves. But as to ethics, the ethical standards should apply to the industry as a whole. And who better than the industry if they do it seriously, as in that case? Let, let me add, before we go on to the, to the next question, uh, and I know the chairman talked a little bit about this in his earlier remarks about uh, the unwillingness of sort of the SEC to trade off volume of enforcements rather than quality. Uh, I think that applies to banks, too. I mean, my, uh, opinion, my advice to Wall Street would be, if you're not guilty, don't settle. Because everybody will assume you are guilty if you settle, even if it minimizes the cost of, of litigation. Uh, we'll go, uh, lady here in the. Thank you. Um, last week I met Bob Monks and, um, and at, a, at an event that uh, GMI ratings had, and um, Nell Minow said that they think that the litmus test um, focal point issue to um, get traction against some of the ethical issues is um, executive comp. And um, when I thought about it, I thought about the corporate personhood, and coincidentally on Bob Monks' website, was the issue of corporate personhood, and they're going to start um, aggressive activism to get the Supreme Court ruling, I suppose. So I'm asking you, what do you think of um, this issue of 
um, because the SEC and all the regulatory framework, by and large, has come up after um, corporate personhood and the Supreme Court ruling in, what, 1886 that um, enabled corporations to enjoy 14th Amendment protection. So they can um, get a lot of um, deference um, at virtually any layer of government and in the courts and, um, and engage in abusive conduct. Let me conduct. ask you if you had that directed at a particular... Um, the, the panel, because um, this, this issue cuts across all of society, and it's really been a problem. And let me ask my, our, our panelists. We are, we are running over a little bit, so if we could keep... The question was the relevancy of corporate personhood uh, and, and, and executive compensation to the building of reputation. Um, well, let me see if Jonathan wants to take about 30 seconds to answer that or, or uh, well, yeah, we well, I mean, just as a matter of basic kind of finance, if, if we're, we're talking about really the world of, of public companies, companies that have shareholders who are not involved in the management of the, of the firm, uh, for many reasons, the, that business form would, which is a, a tremendously powerful source for raising capital and, and 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 for having a uh, a vibrant middle class that's invested that that in in um, uh, the business of the of the of the country um, is impossible unless we have uh, corporate personhood unless we have a separation of uh, the the uh, legal status of the investor from the legal status of the of the corporation otherwise anybody who owned a you know an index fund with the S and P five hundred would be personally liable for all of the uh, uh, bankrupt companies that might inevitably occur among this in the, among the set of companies so I think we're kind of stuck as is every uh, country in the in the world with with some notion of, of, of corporate personhood uh, and then there may be people disagree with respect to the details about uh, you know how what particular attributes of personhood that that entity should be should be uh, 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 imbued with, but you know I think that it, it, this is just part of part of a uh, of a developed economy or a developing economy for that matter. I think we've got time for one last. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd like to respond to this because it it opens up something that's really important in Professor Macy's book that we haven't really talked about. So Bob uh, Bob Bunks was a uh, for those who don't know him a pioneer in corporate governance and bridges a lot of. You know, uh, he he would fit in well on this panel. He bridges a lot of gaps, a lot of divisions in this world. Um, he's absolutely right about about compensation. And Professor Macy's book, in a way, can be understood as in part about the issue of asymmetries in compensation. All right. So that if that the, the whole issue that we discussed a bit about the fact that uh, financial firms have moved from being general partnerships to being uh, limited liability companies of various kinds, it, it's created an asymmetry in compensation. You have upside without downside. Now, the corporation, public or private, is an asymmetry, has an asymmetry built into it, which is that the shareholders, the shareholders get all the upside, they do not bear all the downside risk, and Professor Macy just mentioned, mentioned that. It's always been, it's, it's particularly, the nature of the leverage involved in financial firms and the time, the, the, the instantaneous quality of the business, of the financial markets in the contemporary world have made this a particularly dangerous thing. In, in my view, this, 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 these types of asymmetries, they've been, they're wildly enhanced by the leverage involved in those firms. Now, the, 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 these things can be corrected in a variety of ways, both, um, both by stockholders through private ordering and, and by regulation and by taxes. 
The question of corporate personhood is a, is a different kind of question, although it's connected to it in the sense that the corporation is itself a an asymmetry. And I've always been a little puzzled about the relationship, what, you know, here at the Cato Institute, what the sort of libertarian relationship to the notion of a corporation, which can, in, which in relation to tort liability, can kind of impose this on other people without, without their consent. Uh, but, 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 but Professor Macy's comment about the centrality of a limited liability corporation to modern economic development is spot on. The question is not corporate personhood per se, because in order to have corporations, in order to gather capital, in order to do these things, corporations have to be persons in the sense that they are recognized in court and can be sued and, and can sue and, and so forth. Otherwise, the, just it doesn't work. The question is, is that the same thing as personhood in the sense that you and I are persons? Right? That's, the real, that's the real question I think you're answering. And in my view, it's not the same thing. 